We have many, many conversations like this. Conversations that rip out my heart, leaving me bewildered, speechless, and searching for answers. And I know that at some point, I might not have those answers or fixes to make our little girl feel better. And that is what my life is like. I worry about not having answers that will make Caroline feel safe and secure. For now, though, I am still getting away with dodging her increasing curiosity about what happened to you. I give her vague answers that sound reassuring. I do my best. Often, I will have tears in my eyes as I talk to her about you. Noticing my sadness and tears, Caroline instinctively cradles my face in her hands and says, No, it's okay. Daddy's in heaven, and I can see him in the moon. Yes, sweets. She thinks that you are in heaven and that you live on the moon and amongst the stars. She often asks if she can go visit you. I try to explain to her that she cannot go to heaven because when she goes, she cannot come back. And then this goes into a very convoluted conversation that leaves me searching for even more answers. It's hard to explain to her that there are no visitors in heaven and that if she goes there, she has to stay. Caroline promises me that she'd come back after her visit, but that she just wants to see you, her dad. Every night she looks to find the moon in the sky. She confidently finds it and says, that's where my daddy is. Depending on her mood that day, she either shouts or whispers, Mommy, Mommy, there's the moon. I see Daddy. I love you, Daddy. I love you. As she blows kisses up to the night sky. The last three years have transformed me in many ways. I have learned how to live as a single mother and as an activist. I don't know which transformation has been more difficult to undertake. I didn't really have a choice in either one. And neither transformation has been easy. What's harder, staring down the director of the FBI and catching him in a flat-out lie, or looking Caroline in the eyes and trying to tell her that not all planes are meant to crash into buildings? I am still learning how to raise our little girl without you in her life, just as I am still learning how to be a fully engaged and better American citizen. I have learned how to fight Washington and win small battles, just as I have learned how to answer some of Caroline's less probing questions about what happened to you and why you died. In truth, I am scared of the many things I have learned in the past three years while marching through the halls of Washington. I am scared of the many questions that don't seem to have answers. Sweets, my wake-up call came in the form of you being senselessly murdered by hijackers flying planes into your office building. I doubt that I will ever feel totally safe again in any environment. How can I when steel turns to dust and all that is left of you are your two arms and your small gold wedding band? But your wedding ring, that small shiny gold band, scratched yet still perfectly round and intact, was found in that horrific pile of death and destruction by rescue workers. And sweetheart, I look at your wedding band as a symbol. Much like it was found buried beneath the smoldering rubble and ruins, I believe our country is buried somewhere beneath the current chaos waiting to be discovered so it, too, can shine again. Chapter 1 As Ron told it, he first saw me in 1994 while I was playing beach volleyball at the Jersey Shore. He said he'd had his eye on me from that very instant. I, on the other hand, was completely oblivious to his presence. In those early days, I wouldn't have paid much attention to him because he simply was not my type. Blonde, strong, and blue-eyed, Ron was the straight-laced, wholesome, all-American guy, a Fourth of July parade complete with bursting fireworks. I had always been attracted to men who were the tall, dark, brooding type. 
the type of man who drove fast sports cars, owned racehorses, and made people nervous when they walked into a room. That same summer, I was hanging out with a group of friends, and we had a regular routine. We would arrive at the beach by 10 a.m., eat breakfast, line up the volleyball schedule, and gossip about the parties that had taken place the night before. Around 5 o'clock, the mass exodus from the shoreline would begin. Everyone would filter slowly off the beach, drop their beach chairs on the front lawn of the small beach bar called the Yankee Clipper, and walk inside barefoot to grab a plate of nachos and a couple of Long Island iced teas. It was the summer after my first year in law school when I first met Ron. I was drinking with a group of friends at the Yankee Clipper, and each time one of us finished a drink, the waitress appeared with another, and another, and another. As the evening wore on, so did the mystery as to who was sending over all the drinks. The waitress soon began bringing over trays of shots and handing them out to everyone. She continued to bring tray after tray after tray. Finally, I asked who was sending over the free drinks. She told me she was sworn to secrecy, but that our mysterious benefactor was in the bar and an admirer of mine. I was spooked and wanted to leave immediately. My friends were intrigued and insisted that we stay. In truth, they were just enjoying all the free drinks. Sometime after midnight, a very inebriated guy showed up with a tray of drinks. He knocked into me, nearly spilling the entire tray. I looked at him annoyed and asked if I could help him with anything. He righted himself, looked me straight in the eye, and stammered, I just want you to know I love you. Ron Breitweiser had spoken his first words to me. His eyes were bloodshot and he was barely standing. All I wanted to do was get away from him. I looked at Ron as he stumbled some more and asked, Will you go out on a date with me? Put off by his forwardness and his drunkenness, I brushed him off by saying that I was leaving for Europe the next day for the summer. I then turned to my friend Paul and asked him to walk me